Verse 10 is where we're going to land for our meditation tonight. And you guys know how we do it. We will have an hour presentation, maybe a little less, a little more, and then some Q&A. So basically the way I want you to frame your thoughts and you can add additional questions or observations when we get there is around what does mending, what does mending have to do with me? What does mending have to do with me? You see our title for 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today is Mend Your Nets. That's what we're going to be dealing with as we make our way to verse 10. What does mending have to do with me? Obviously, we're going to be dealing with a historical context that's addressing a people group, not us. We are secondary and tertiary listeners. So for us, it will have to be by way of application. But I'm hoping that as we develop the text, it will make sense to you the application. And then you can answer or we can answer what does mending have to do with me. All right, let me open in a word of prayer and then we will get at our topic for tonight. Amen. Amen. So I want you guys to go ahead on and settle on in. We're going to read the first 11 verses of First Corinthians. As I stated in the opening commentary, we've got three epistles to here. The third they may have had and circulated, but it didn't get preserved, wasn't necessary. Um, The kind of title to our study over the next several weeks is going to be The gospel provides order out of chaos. The gospel provides order out of chaos. That's going to be our proposition. That will be obviously seen in the book of uh, Corinthians. You'll see that what Paul is doing is addressing the unraveling of the Corinthian church in the midst of a culture that's already unraveled in so many ways. And and the goal of the gospel is to bring order to and out of chaos. That's exactly what the goal of the gospel is, is to take people out of the midst of chaos, which is our indigenous um, um, sort of native environment. We are part of the chaos of this world, both ontologically and by the fall. And when God brings us into his space called the ecclesia, the church, he's bringing us into an organization which is organic in nature and it is redemptive in its expression. That is, he is reorganizing us. I hope those terms come home to you over the hour because I will repeat them on purpose. God is reorganizing his people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. And reorganization means that we were out of order at one point. And there are a lot of things missing in our life, a lot of um, uh, vague and opaque views and ideas that we held because we were products of our culture. We were products of our culture internally and externally as well. So being brought into the ecclesia, into the church, God begins to take the chaos of the tohu bohu Genesis 1, 1 and 2 and create order by bringing light into the situation and organizing the distinction between the heavens above, the earth beneath, the water and the land and the day and the darkness and the light and the night. Those are all categories of order that come and emerge up out of chaos. Does that make some sense? And then you and I begin to be part of a 
uh, teleological historical progression of God's purpose in our world. So the Genesis narrative of in the beginning, God creating the heavens and the earth and all of that, the earth was without form. That's what we mean by chaos, without form, tohu bohu. And darkness was upon the face of the earth. That would be the natural consequence of chaos is darkness. And then the spirit of God is moving upon this chaos. That's the third immediate <clears throat> what we call resident landlord. I taught you all that, right? The resident landlord is the Holy Ghost. The landlord is the Lord Jesus, but he's in glory with the father. So the Lord landlord sends his resident landlord to actually impact our world at the efficacious nature, at the inner gion, at the energy level. The spirit of God moves energetically to take chaos and bring about order at the command of the voice of God, which is Jesus. He's the logos of the father. The father speaks, the son acts, and the Holy Ghost obeys that act. And then we have uh, creative order taking place. <clears throat> As it was for creation, so it is for you and me. This is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse <clears throat> 6. But God, who calls the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our heart to bring about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That verse will show up in a second, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And what Paul did with that verse was show us how that in the creation narrative, it points to the spiritual recreation of everyone that comes to know God by faith in Christ. Does that make some sense? Well, good, because what's going to happen, that would have been 2 Corinthians 4, 6, please. That, what would have, what, what's going to happen as we go through the book of Corinth, and I'm, I'm only going to pick selected um, subject matters. So there's 15 chapters in chapter in 1 Corinthians, the first epistle. We'll probably take about eight out of that one. And then when we get into 2 Corinthians, we'll take about four out of that. That might get us into June and July, depending how bogged down we get. So here we are, we're dealing with a profoundly interesting culture in the Corinthian uh, society. If you will pull the map up, uh, Corinth is a beautiful place. Has anyone ever been to um, Corinth and Athens and that part of the Greek world? Good. Uh, my, my brother did. So um, uh, her been there and I'm on my way, man, Barbara. She promises that uh, life will end if I don't take her here. So we'll be going here shortly. Um, all of this area is what is called the uh, the larger Roman Empire back at that time, but it was dominated by Greek culture. This is called the mainland of Greece. This is a newer map, an older map would have this area being what we call Asia Minor, drifting towards Asia Minor, where the seven churches are, Ephesus and Thessalonia, Colossae, Philippi, out here, the Aegean Sea. This here is the Saronic Gulf. They call this the Saronic Gulf. This heads over towards uh, Turkey, over towards Babylon, over towards um, moving towards the uh, India coast. And over here is part of what we know as the Mediterranean Sea. It's a beautiful area. If we were down here where my indicator is now, we're moving now down to the area of Israel, Palestine, Galilee. That's way down here. So ministry started down here. As you guys know the decree, go ye into all the world and do what? Begin where? Jerusalem. And then Judea. And then Samaria 
and then the uttermost parts of the world. As we get into this area, it is predominantly the work of one man with a consortium of helpers. His name is who? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is planting the churches in Achaia, that's Corinth, in the seven churches of Asia Minor, which is fundamentally where all of your epistles in the New Testament are. Down here is where the Jewish brethren, Peter, James, and John, are confined in their work of bringing the gospel. Thomas moves over towards India, so he takes a kind of... Um, east-south journey over time. The others stay pretty much in the Jerusalem area and then die off. The Apostle Paul does a bunch of work here. This area, Corinth, is known for what is called is Ithmus, Ithmus. And Ithmus is a kind of canal running through a narrow portion of the city. You can see that line here. This is going to be like the um, Panama Canal where on each side of these uh, waters, ships would come in, seaports on either side, as well as over here, which made Corinth a very popular town. And according to, um, and you can pull me back up to verse one, if you don't mind, according to you know, history, it was a colony of Rome. Very prominent. It was the, one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire. So it's a big Big. Um, it's a huge city. At that time, you know, hundreds of thousands were large. This is almost a million people there. And what I want you to imagine or conceive is point number one in our outline, the church planet in the midst of Rome. OK, the church planet in the midst of Rome. Automatically, we're dealing with what we call a paradoxical statement because Rome is the last tyrannical, despotic, uh, monarchial, it's really an imperial kingdom that was hostile to anything religious at the end of the day. Rome is your last of the four beasts of Nebuchadnezzar's massive 90-foot image, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, then we have the Grecian kingdom. Then we have the Roman Empire at the bottom. We'll see that language in a moment because I want to emphasize why it is we can look on that map and in the first century, find local congregations all over Corinth for several hundreds of years. Today, we still have churches in Corinth, but they're pretty weak spiritually. Okay, but they're there. We would call them Greek Orthodox churches. Now, some benefit to Greek Orthodoxy. I, I love some of the literature. I enjoy some of the patristic fathers. They have some insights into things we can learn from. But in terms of what they should have been doing up till now, which is a ro robust evangelism that failed. And it failed largely because of what we're going to ultimately deal with. And that is when the church is in the world, it is to occupy as again a kind of parenthetical world in the midst of another world not to be subsumed by the world that it's in but to impact that world for Christ. That's what a local church is supposed to be like when it's as we're going to see fully grown. That's what a Christian is supposed to be like when he's fully grown. A fully grown Christian is to straddle the fence of being both in the world and not of it at the same time. 
All right. That's called equilibrium. I taught you guys that extremes are always a problem. Operating out of equilibrium is essential whenever there is an unavoidable uh, dichotomy, whenever there is an unavoidable uh, paradox, you and I are to seek to try to strike the balance. Right. This is what you and I are struggling with in our culture today. The reason why I'm dealing with the, the book of Corinth, having done it maybe four or five times over the 27 years here at Grace, is because where we are today is going to be a rich parallelism where we can map the text of Corinth onto what we're dealing with today and see it in a fresh light. There are a lot of things in the disarray of Corinth that are present in our world today. One of them that was huge, even though there's many, is a complete controversy over what it means to be a man or a woman. And so we will be working through that as well to understand how society can so uh, disintegrate into these kind of vulcanized, segregated ideological constructs that fail to understand the clear biological order. But it does happen, and we want to know why. Okay, so Paul's going to deal with that. You do know that, right? First Corinthians 11, he deals with that. And that's because as we continue to look at it, there are, I'm just giving three categories under subpoint A. Uh, the church at Corinth was established by the Apostle Paul and his uh, both Jewish and Gentile brethren, as you'll see in verse one uh, in AD 55. That means we would have about 15 years before Rome is sacked. Okay, Rome will be decimated. The Corinthians will have their problems with that decimation. But if I were to describe Rome in terms of three constituent political and social um, um, ideologies, it would be that Rome was liberal, at least the area in Corinth, Corinth, liberal. And when we use that term, be very careful. I'm not talking about classical liberalism. I'm talking about a kind of neoliberal ideology that divorces itself from a biblical worldview at fundamental levels. Literal classical liberalism did not go so far as to deny the ontological reality and the scientific factors of life that are so obvious to us that, you, you know, you got to really turn yourself into a pretzel not to see reality. Liberalism never did that. Liberalism always taught that what must be understood in terms of the Imago Dei is that men and women must have as much freedom as they possibly can to prosper and thrive and become all they can as human beings. That is what the underlying principle of liberalism was. Liberalism was about private property, personal rights. Liberalism was about being able to uh, have your domain and no one take it from you or no one define who you are. No one impedes on your, your rights. Liberalism was not some weird neoliberal idea as we have it today where there's an attack on your freedoms. So I just want you to know if you use the term liberal, make sure you understand that you are talking something different than classical liberalism. Does that make sense? Because our founding fathers would have been much more sympathetic to liberalism than, you know, coming up out of the tyranny of King George III. 
They would have been much more about protecting men's right to be free, to prosper under God, the inalienable rights, inalienable rights of the human person. This would be the tension between the sovereignty of the individual and the sovereignty of the state. Does that make some sense? That's the battle we're dealing with today, because that's always what's happening when we lose the balance between government, the society, the people and God as the anchor of them both. Once you lose the anchor of government and the people, then the government will always ultimately take a vertical position of dominance and then press down on the people. That's what we're dealing with today. You guys see that? All right, so I use the term liberal. It's not as, as um, thoroughly explanatory as it can because Corinth is a beautiful place. That's the problem with creation. Creation can be so absolutely alluring and seductive that you can find yourself engaging in what we warn is creature worship. You can look at the beauty of the landscape and the topography of any part of God's creation and you can you can fall in love with it. And then you can see when man does the right thing and add to it by his creativeness, buildings and monuments and and great works. You can even fall in love with it more as we ought to all be drawn by beauty. Beauty should draw us in. Because it gives us an echo and a expression of who God is. Since we are created in the Imago Dei, if God allows us to express, doesn't it follow that hints of the divine in his wisdom, power, beauty, splendor, complexity is going to show up in our creative handiwork? That's what compels us. That's what draws us. You get that when you go to Corinth. The second thing you get in Corinth is what is called radical secularism. And radical secularism is a kind of intrinsic contradiction amongst the Corinthians in that the Corinthians did not tolerate a monotheistic framework of God. They, uh, the Corinthians were a hodgepodge of classical Greek culture, politics, and ideology going all the way back before Plato and Socrates, going way, way back, some like um, 600, 700 years before Christ. They were a hodgepodge of classical Greek philosophy and culture, but also added into that was your Roman culture and your Roman uh, um, ideologies and your Roman gods. So not only do you have Greek gods going on like Aphrodite, which was a central god that Paul is going to be dealing with, but you have all of the other pagan gods of, of Zeus and, and um, Asclep- Asclepius. Asclepius is your serpent god running up the pole. Asclepius, your serpent god, the pseudo-medicine god, which at that time was an alchemistic kind of Gnostic hodgepodge of chemistry and mysticism, okay? And then again, they have what we call a pantheon of gods or what we call in theology a henotheism of gods, hierarchy of gods. Like you got so many gods were going on at that time. I'll show you a couple verses in a minute that you can just pick your own god. Everybody had their own god, but... When it was time to bow down to Caesar, everybody had to bow down. In other words, Caesar will let you have your little Buddha doll, whatever kind you wanted. But when he wanted his tax money, you had to pinch the incense and call Caesar curios. See where we are today? That's kind of where we're going. 
All right. The final thing that this 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 unholy trinity or liberal trinity framework gives us is hyper perverseness. So Corinth is known for its profanity, its massive hypersexual distorted um, sort of display of gross, abominable hybrid of sexuality and religion. Hybrid of sexuality and religion. This is a thing that Paul will be dealing with. He'll be dealing with why Christians in the church at Corinth could hold to fornication and worshiping God at the same time. Explicit open fornication and worshiping God at the same time because Paul saw the oracles of Delphi. He saw the, uh, the mystical religions of that day and the priest religions of that day that were largely driven and, and governed by female, female priests dominated the temple. Then they also had male priests. And all of these priests in these secular temples, the temple of Aphrodite, for one, were um, all given to homosexuality, lesbianism, and uh, we would today call it trans, uh, transvestism, to be a transvestite. Uh, versus transgenderism that goes deeper. That's a new philosophy. But transvestism was simply the fact that they had avoided obedience to the book of um, Deuteronomy 22.5. A man shall not wear that which pertains to a woman and a woman shall not put on that which pertains to a man. Do not confound your gender and therefore your sexual expression. Don't conflate those categories. Don't intentionally confuse people. You guys remember that prohibition, right? Do you remember that? Right. So just as an aside, so we can drive into our text, um, the reason why God would tell us not to do it, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other thing, is because if we do it, we will transform society. That's right. I am becoming more and more clear of how malleable and um, transformable human beings are as suggestions. It's becoming obvious to me that the social sciences are aware that if you say things the right way enough times with enough optics, you can change people's whole physiological, psycho, emotional makeup into something that doesn't correspond with God's glory. Does that make sense? All right, so let's walk into our text. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. I, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. We'll get back to him, but that verse 1 is beautiful because Sosthenes is somebody we want to keep in mind, okay? Just keep brother Sosthenes in mind, okay? If he was from the hood, we would call him so-so, okay? So-so. That's what we do in the hood. We break it down. We break it down. This is called being inclusive, okay? Verse two, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, by them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Remember the hierarchy here. The church is God's church and Christ is the head of God's church and he is the central grounds of the saints who are of God's church. So you see the father, you see the son, and you see the saints, do you not? It's a very beautiful expression that Paul is putting here unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified, set apart. Remember, to be sanctified is set apart. In Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, 
our Lord, both theirs and ours. I love what verse uh, two is doing. He's actually inferring in his language a universality of the church without distinction for a reason. So when he makes mention of Corinth, he says, Corinth calls upon the name of the Lord with every other Christian that calls upon the name of the Lord, both ours and theirs. Now he's doing that for a purpose, okay? We're going to see it when we get there. I hope I can get there in time enough for us to unpack it because he already knows the problem and he's trying to shore it up with being a good fatherly, uh, uh, sympathetic father as he speaks to them. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a normal formulation by the apostle. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ. Now, verse four, we won't stay there long, but please understand Paul was jazzed that God was pleased to have believers in Corinth. He was absolutely jazzed, absolutely elated that God would have churches in Achaia, in Corinth. See, because Corinth, again, as I stated, was one of Rome's big dog cities. It's one of Rome's biggest um, vassal cities, one of Rome's colonized cities. They poured so much money into the Roman Empire to get the glory of Rome manifested all over Corinth. Buildings and temples and amphitheaters and the Olympic Games. All that language is in the book of First and Second Corinthians, right? Well, what Paul does, if he could go to the Acropolis at the top of the hill of Corinth and look out over Corinth, as we saw on the map, he would look out and see how the Lord Jesus Christ has claimed Corinth for himself. And the evidence of it would have been local gospel churches all over Corinth establishing the glory of God in the person of Christ. Paul is saying, amen, amen. Get down, get down to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Happy about saints in Corinth. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But it's paradoxical because Corinth is a mess. God has to give you eyes to be able to see saints in the midst of East Bay mud. God has to give you eyes to see believers in the dunghill of perversion. He has to give you eyes to see the jewel of his redemptive glory coexisting with rotten meat. God has to give you eyes to see that. He really does. Because you and I have a fundamental sort of overgeneralizing coping mechanism where we call either things all good or all bad. And that's probably never true in this life. To call a thing all good or all bad just means that we're being lazy about the minute details of that particular subject. Am I making some sense? All right, so let's keep going because I do want to get to our practical application almost. So I think you get that. And it'll show up in our other studies as well. He thanks God for it. That in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. All right, it's time to go to work. So we Looking at point number one, pull that back up. Let me just close it out so we can go to point number two. Under point number one, we have sub point B, God's property, right? I just uttered that. That's Acts 20, 28. God purchased the church by his own blood. 
The church matters to God. And in Ephesians 2, 20 through 22, I will remind you that the church of the living God is the God's habitation by the Spirit. In other words, the church is where God in his redemptive intentionality substantially dwells. So the church is not just some building like the white pillared amphitheaters running all around Corinth that you can see and they're beautiful and they are stately and they are gaudy. The church of the living God is a bunch of people. But God dwells in them and God dwells with them and they have a unique fragrance, as I talked about on Tuesday, a unique manifestation that when a lost person comes into the midst, they ought to recognize something unique about them, distinctly different than any other community is unique to God. So that's Ephesians 2. Verse 20, uh, chapter, yeah, verse 20 through 22, read it in your own time. And finally, the third one is Christ's witness. Notice what is said here in verse five. And I'm going to I'm going to hearken to Daniel 2, 34 through 36 to establish myself. Uh, verse five and six, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was what confirmed in you. Stop right there. So again. What Paul is saying in so many words is when God came to you with the gospel, he came to you with a heavenly pinata that he opened up and poured upon you gifts that enriched you with the presence of God, the power of God, the resources of God, the gifts of God. These things we will enumerate as we go through the scriptures, such as the gifts of the spirit, right? and the manifestation and demonstration of the power of the gospel in the conversion of men and women. Healings, right? The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the word of discernment, the gift of discernment, the gift of glossolalia, speaking in languages. When I get there, we're going to unpack that again because we're in a day of tongues without interpretation once again. That's where we are today. This is called the unraveling of humanity. This is the curse of the ancient Babylonian tower that God broke down and he scattered their languages so that they didn't know what they were talking about. This is where we are today. The deconstruction of language. We'll look at that. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So this is Paul talking to the Corinthians saying, I know that the grace of God abides in you, not only because of all the gifts you have, but because I was there when God converted you through the preaching of my gospel and you came to the waters of baptism and the waters of baptism confirmed who you were. And to this day, God is keeping you through the gospel. That's called confirmation. OK, it's a Greek term that means to secure and to establish and to appoint. OK, but bias is the Greek term and it means to base you, to settle you, establish you, ground you so that you don't easily get moved. That's the beauty of what it means to be a believer, rooted and grounded in him. We talked about that. This is what Paul was enjoying, rooted and grounded in him, in Corinth of all places. That's because something happened, not in AD 55, but in AD 33, right? Some 22 years earlier. Daniel put it like this in Daniel chapter two, verse 34. Listen to what Daniel says. You saw 
until that a stone was cut out without hands. Now, who is that stone? Who cut him out? The father. He cut him out of where? He cut him out of humanity. To distinguish him from humanity in his incarnation. And set him up as to be the mediator between God and the evil system. Notice what it says. Made without hands. That's the way Colossae puts it. And it's speaking about his incarnation, his humanity. He was circumcised with the circumcision of God. He was he was he he assumed Adam's nature, but he was not sinful like Adam. Okay, he was an uncircumcised Adam. He took on our circumcision in order to liberate us from the state of Adamic curse that was ours. That was resolved in Christ. He was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his what? Now, you guys know what that means, right? Because, you know, the image's head was what? Babylon. You know, his chest and shoulders were what? The Medo-Persians. You know, his loins and thighs were the Grecian kingdom. And you know, his legs and feet were the... Now, notice what it says. This is important. He smote the image upon his feet. Now, he could have smote the image in his head. God could have used Michael as a neo-Davidic paradigm and put Jesus in some kind of heavenly slingshot and hit the head of the Babylonian system and the whole thing toppled over, that would have been another kind of gospel optic we would have had to work with. Does that make some sense? Knock the whole thing down at Babylon, at Nebuchadnezzar. Take it down at Neb. But that wasn't God's purpose. God's purpose was this world to be governed by the Gentiles from the Babylonian kingdom all the way through the Roman Empire. And it is still operating out of the Neo-Roman empire juridical system today that's what we understand all right this is why the book of the apocalypse called the roman empire not by the roman empire but by babylon these are called inversion motifs the head is represented by the feet but the feet is declared to be the head why because the feet at that time was the head babylon didn't exist anymore God completely annihilated Babylon. The Medo-Persians became little or nothing. In fact, Turkey actually became prominently Christian a thousand years after the church age. And so the Grecian kingdom completely sucked up by the Shemites, that is by the Lord Jesus. Now I'm going back to the days of Noah now, when Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth is our Greek brethren going all the way up to our Nordic brethren, the Germans all the way up to the Russians. The further north we get, the lighter we get. That's our Japheth brethren. Y'all keeping up with me? I'm teaching you something. That's our Japheth brethren. Well, the Shemite is our Jewish brethren, which has a bleed over from the Canaanite Palestinian area going back to Africa. But first starting in Babylon. That's why they are a very bronze colored people. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Right. So Shem, Ham and Japheth are the product of Noah, who lived closer to the Babylonian region, as did Abraham. So when Shem, Ham and Japheth um, repopulate the world, the vast majority of the world was in the southern part of the world, the Hamite area, 
They would become uh, Arabs and they would become Hebrews and they would become the Chinese and they would become the Indians. Mongolians have a major bleed over into the African culture. So we're, when we're talking about moving towards the north, that's later on. That's the Japhethites. The Japhethites are the lighter skinned people. Are y'all hearing me? But the promise was that the tent of Japhethites would be enlarged and the Shemites would come up in that tent and they would be a collaboration of the gospel. That's exactly what happened. Uh, Shem moves through Abraham up into Canaan. And Canaan becomes a place where Jesus shows up and the gospel spreads to Shemite, the Semitic people. That's called the Semitic people. Semitic, Shemites, Semitic people. Jesus is Semitic, the Semitic people. That means he has a bleed into Africa. We know that, don't we? We know that between Abraham and Keturah and Abraham and Hagar and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and his wife, Zipporah and Joseph and his wives. Don't we know that? Go all the way back. In fact, it's really interesting. I I should keep going, but I'm just milking you to help you kind of get a visual of the uh, polyglot nature of the ethnic overlays. Because God has always been doing that, which is why we despise racism. We despise it because God has always been taking men and women of character and allowing them to be the nobility of heaven. This is why as we make our way through the wilderness and our rise, move and go, we got to deal with the foolishness of uh, Miriam and and uh, and uh, Aaron. I want to play the dozens on their brother. So when we play the dozens like we do, it just means we're stupid. Does that make some sense? Yeah, you just be, that means you don't have an argument. Your argument is as shallow as our melanin. God uses whomever he wants to use anytime he wants to use them. And if y'all act a fool, he'll get a donkey to do it. Right? Okay. So... The stone smites him at his feet of iron and clay and breaks them to pieces. Verse 35. Look at verse 35. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass and the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chap of the summer threshing floor. Do you see the visual? The whole kingdom not only crumbles, but blows in the wind, blows in the wind, blows in the wind. This is so comforting if we can own this in our spirit that it's impossible for us to conceive that any kingdom, any time in the world that would arrogate authority over everything could ultimately be true. There's not a kingdom in this world that ultimately won't come down and be turned to chaff. The vision you get is Jesus smashing the kingdom. Does that make sense? As he did with Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Grecian kingdom, the Roman Empire, all of the new world order, all of the global system, all of these linear entities operating at the top, the puppet masters, all are under the maniacal suicide mission of the devil. It's a maniacal suicide mission. You know, he knows he has but a short period of time. His job is to hocus pocus and get people to believe that he is real. He's nothing but a wizard of Oz at the end of the day. That, that doesn't mean that we won't have to deal with that fool. We will have to deal with him. Like the three boys had to deal with the foolishness of Nehemiah. Like Daniel had to deal with the foolishness of Darius and 
Belteshazzar and all those. And many of the, what we would call the, um, the, um, the, the Jewish brethren that had to deal with um, the Maccabean brethren who had to deal with Antiochus and Epiphanes and, and many of the Roman Empire rulers who came in thinking that they could be God and the, the resistance among the righteous opposed them, but it meant that they suffered. So when I am talking about the triumphalism of the gospel, what I am not saying to you, because I kind of hear the hint, triumphalism does not mean that you and I won't in many cases go through serious, serious suffering. Such serious suffering that it will actually delay any legitimate expression of triumph in our soul and in our language until the Lord actually rescues us. So when we are exalting in this, uh, what we call immutable counsel of God, we do it with the humility that Paul says we are ancients, ancient, anxiously waiting for the return of Jesus. That's the way the language is. You'll see that here in a moment in our verse. So you see what happens. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a what? Look at that. So now, you know, you're dealing with uh, anthropomorphism here. We're dealing with a, a kind of um, uh, cosmo, cosmological morphism where the stone is growing. That means the stone is alive. And taking on massive testimony and witness around the world, it becomes a kingdom. That's what Jesus said. That's what he said. The smallest seed becomes the greatest tree upon this rock. Will I build my church? Right. It's a beautiful thing when you see it. And notice what it says in this great mountain did what? Filled the whole earth. Now, that's biblical eschatology. That's biblical eschatology. We won't drill further down into it because we got four views out there that are prominent. I've, I've already shared that with you. But just imagine. As we move on, that God might give the church another round. I want you to think about that. Just imagine that God might give the church another round. Have you thought about that yet? So I want you to just keep that in your head for a second. Just imagine that God is just right now simply taking us through the ellipses, tribulation, to purge the church and to reestablish the church's relevance in the world so that it could prosper the church as it ought to be prospered. Just imagine God simply pruning the tree on down to a little twig so it can bear more fruit. What if that's what's going on? Okay. So you want to hold that in your card of eschatological expectations because you got doomsdayers. And the doomsdayers don't know the difference between the sovereignty of God relative to his prophetic objectives and what we call fatalistic determinism. Now, fatalistic determinism emerges up out of people's emotion and psychological predisposition. It does not come from scripture. Raise your hand if you need me to expand on that. I really don't mind. Okay, because a lot so a lot of times you'll hear people talking when we were going through this COVID foolishness. What I was saying to a lot of people about what was going on in this COVID thing, because the pressure was down. I said, stop, stop listening to the devil as if he's sovereign, because that's what he loves for you to do. 
He, I remember one brother dearly. He's with us now, happy in the Lord. Because you see, when God gets you through a trial, you know, you're super happy. You forgot all of the complaining you was doing and the fearing you were doing. And, and, and then you just got happy in the Lord. But I remember him saying, Pastor, I came from this country and it was already communist and, and filled with all this stuff. I've seen it before. And inevitably that community collapsed. I said, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Did you capture what I just stated? Right. So what he had done is he allowed the paradigm of his past experience to have equal authority with the potential of God. He didn't actually have what we would call a deep eschatological framework for knowing where we are and where we're headed. He just had a knowledge of how he saw his own country get corrupted by communism and taken down by the same antics we're dealing with today. And and what he thought was, okay, here we are. We're at the end because the lies are so massive going on in our media and the pressure is so great and the threat now is existential. People are losing their jobs. People are getting sick and dying. And people are buying into the lie that they are getting sick from this, that, and the other thing. And so it's like, here you got this existential threat of a virus you can't see killing people. And and on top of that, we don't really know if we have a solution. All of those were lies. People still have to overcome that today. Right. So there's going to be something else coming down the pike. What you and I have to do is learn from how we dealt with this last one so we can do a better job the next time round. Does that make some sense? You actually have to learn. You have to learn, what did I do wrong on a personal level? This is going to be, again, part of our marriage series. Because when, see, you're married to Jesus. And Jesus is taking his bride through the wilderness. And the devil is spewing out a flood in order to wash her away. You know that. You're married to Jesus. And he told you this is going to happen. And it's going to be challenging. And we got to often wait for those two great wings of an eagle to swoop down and lift us up as the waters come right up on our back. We see the waters, the floods of propaganda, the floods of lies, the floods of demonic entities working together to try to get us. And then all of a sudden we're lifted up by the most high God, able to actually overcome the waters. But see, some of us going to die just from fear of the water. I mean, some of us going to die because it's hard. And we're not going to hell. We're just going to die because it's hard to keep your eyes on God when the devil's voice is so deep in your head. (laughs) The Lord is going to come on. Some of y'all come on home. Come on. Come on. You got to go. You can't outrun this. Come on. You got to go. You see what I'm getting at? Very important. All right, Jess, come on, we got to keep moving because we got to get, get, get to it. Go back to our first point so I can move forward. Um, so under point number one, the church planted in the midst of Rome. So much going on there. Point number two, the church resourced for their what? Yes. That's right. The church resourced for their task. Just a few things to be said here so I can move into my final point because I want to nurture that for 10 to 15 minutes and then we can do some Q&A. Notice what Paul says over in verse six. Verse five and six in everything you are enriched by him. Do you see that 
In everything you are enriched by him. In my outline, I use the term spiritually and theologically equipped. You got that? All right. That's not an exegesis. That's just an observation. Can you pull that uh, PowerPoint up? Uh, Sudar, thank you. I want you to see it again. I'm going to make some observations. Spiritually equipped. I, I, I pulled out theological, but spiritually Theologically equipped is the essence. Equipping means to be granted the theological resources to be able to actually live out your life as a believer. It has to be a spiritual energy bringing it about, but it is a theological canon that manifests your sonship. Did that make some sense? All right. So when we talk about spiritual, that's its ontological nature, right? There are carnal things and then there are spiritual things. Spiritual things will have as its canon, its body and corpus of truth, theology. And we would call that the word of God. So what God gave us was his word, which frames for us God's message to us as to who we are, who he is, who we are in him and what we should be doing. Okay. now notice the way Paul puts it, because I want us to deal with three things briefly, spiritually equipped believers who are committed to Christ, sustained by God to do what? There you go. That's really what I mean. If I were dealing with the grammar, going back to the verse, I just want to pull a verse. I'm going to touch on the grammar. I'm not going to be long, but you'll get this because some of you guys have been able to tolerate me taking you into grammar lessons. This will make sense. That in everything you are enriched. Do you see that? So that's the, that's the, Overture, that's the expression. That's what God has done. I used the term pinata a moment ago, didn't I? Because a pinata represents a cluster of things that promises an outpouring when you bust that cluster. Does that make some sense? So our Greek word is pluo, and it literally means to pour out. Okay? Uh, the idea is a term that Paul uses all the time, plusante, the idea of pouring out and it's coming from above. So it's a heavenly pouring out. It's the metaphor of water. Um, but pluo means to uh, resource, to equip, to supply, to give you exactly what you need in order for you to be able to do what God wants you to do. Y'all got that. And I I love this so that in everything you're enriched. Now, what I like about what Paul says, he uses this term pontos, everything. What he says, and he's going to reiterate it in verse seven, he's going to say, you Corinthians are not lacking anything. So I'll just put a parenthetical on, on this before we go. Christians complain a lot. Christians complain a lot. And God constantly says you, you don't lack anything. Now, Accessing what you have is another story. Learning how to use it becomes another story again. And then using it after learning how to use it, after accessing it, becomes yet another story. So if you get all of these Amazon and UPS and Federal Express packages at your front door and you never go bring them in the house, open them up and find out the contents therein, read the instructions and then employ those resources. That's on you. Does that make some sense? All right. That's it's a beautiful thing that in everything you're enriched by him. Now, here are the two categories that Paul says are the prominent outcome of the employment of those qualities are those gifts, those resources in utterance and knowledge. Do you see that? 
He says, when you employ those gifts in your relationship with God, the outcome should be, are you ready? That you should have something to say. That's utterance. That's utterance. That's utterance. He says, you're equipped in all utterance and then knowledge. Right. So again, I'll pick up on that when we get to 1 Corinthians 14 more fully. But utterance means that God gives you gifts in order that you might be able to open your mouth and say something. Now, I want to I want to grab with uh, I want to put a cap on utterance for a moment because we're getting ready to deal with the problem the Corinthians have. The word utterance there is to be understood as God telling you something to say for which you don't have to say anything else but what God said to say. So let me help you understand that. It's not a word that he's giving to you that you modify. It's not a word that he's giving to you that you add to. This particular construction means say what I say because what I'm saying is enough to be said. In other words, I'm not giving you a deficient knowledge of myself. I'm giving you a sufficient knowledge so that all you have to do when you when you have a proper conclusion of what I've said is say what I say. Now, how can you go wrong when you simply say what God says? That makes sense, right? Easier said than done. But logos is the word. Lagos is the definitive word. Say what I say. Once you have worked it through, say what I say. Come to a conclusion. Understand what I'm saying. Getting ready to go there. And by the way, I'm going to give you a continual outpouring of gnose for that. You and I are going to continue to get to know each other. That's our term, gnoske. Gnoske is intimate knowledge. It's reciprocating knowledge. This is eternal life. That they might know me. Y'all got that? I'm telling you something. In other words, God has a word for you to say. And he keeps talking to you. Gnosis. So that you can have the data to say it. And then what he's saying is, if you get this rhythm of relationship down between you and me, you'll be comfortable simply saying what I say. And it'll do the job. Now, I'm saying this all up front because the Corinthians collapsed on this very thing. But see, this is also what's going on in our wilderness sojourn. God's taking them the long route around so he can have a relationship with them. (laughs) I'm going to let you get hungry so you can ask me. That's all I want you to do is ask. Right? I'm going to let you get thirsty. So you can ask me and watch me show up because this is about a relationship. And when I'm done reciprocating with you, you're going to tell the world that the Lord is good. That's, that's what you do. That's what you do. Right. Oh, taste and see. All right. Verse six, verse six. I could say a whole lot more. Even as the testimony of Christ Now he sums up this blessed experience of a word spoken and words given in the person of Christ. That makes all the sense in the world. Jesus is the sum total of God's message, is he not? He is the word made flesh. He's the logos. 
And the Spirit of God takes the Logos, the Word made flesh, and gives you and I a definitive Logos to tell men and women about the Logos. You'll see that in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 through 5. Pull up 1 Corinthians 2. I'll just use this as a uh, parenthetical text. I'm not going to stay here long. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you have 1 Corinthians 1, 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 1. Here it is. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of what? I was declaring unto you, here it is again, the what? Now, what is the testimony of God? Jesus Christ. Is that right? Now look at verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the summation of the revelation given to us. That is the final word for access to all other words that they might be a blessing to us. So this is going to be key. This is going to be key. So what God said is, I have summed up the totality of my revelation in the person of Jesus who was crucified for you. If you keep that message clear, it will access you for every other wisdom need. That's exactly right. That's very, that's exactly right. So I'll deal with that when we get to chapter two. It's not a mantra. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. You haven't done anything to make it a mantra. It's a principle. And a principle is like a key. And when you unlock that door, you open the door and inside are the promises. Christ is the principle that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And inside Christ are the promises. He is for us wisdom, redemption, sanctification, right? And righteousness. So Christ becomes that piñata that opens up into all this fullness applied. That's what Paul is saying, okay? They're not going to believe it. Go back. Let me, go, let me see if I can keep moving. Notice what it says in verse 7. So that you become, become, come behind in no gift as you are what? Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as a father, Paul is saying this to them as we move to our final point, which I want to drill down into. Paul is saying you guys are acting like God is not enough. Remember I made that statement a couple weeks ago? That's what we do. We act like God is not enough. The Corinthians acted like God was not enough. When I say God, I'm talking about the one true and living God revealed in the person of his son. Jesus made a reality to us about the third person, the triune God. That's what I'm talking about. So what the church at Corinth fell into was the assumption that there had to be more to all things than Jesus. Y'all got that? All right. So this is what we're getting ready to work through. Verse eight. I hate to go on. I really want to unpack that more, but time won't allow me. Jesus shall confirm you unto the end in order that you might be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing. He added Jesus on it a little bit more. He says, you don't lack anything and Jesus will keep you. He'll confirm you. He'll make it to when you get to that day. No one will stand up and legitimately condemn you as being un, being illegitimate in the presence of God. That's literally what the term is implying. I thought, how beautiful. He says, when you stand before God, there will be no one that can legally blame you as a fraud. 
Isn't that good? Because see, the Corinthians are a mess. I told you we're dealing with paradoxes. The Corinthians are a mess. Are they a mess? He's getting ready to deal with a mess. But he just told them, in Christ, you can be sure of this, that when you stand before God, there won't be a devil, there won't be a demon, there won't be a, a, a hell-bound sinner that will say, hey, I got something to say that I know will t- overthrow your judgment about Pastor Jesse. That's wild. Did you hear what I just stated? That's wild. Because on the ground, linearly, I could mess up really bad. So can you. I have absolutely no confidence in myself that I will stand before God blameless of accusations that could nail me and send me to hell. Do you understand what I'm saying, Josh? Maybe some people don't get it. When I think about what, what the Holy Spirit just said to Paul about the church, and it's the church at Corinth of all places, I'm like, boy, what a promise. Corinth is a mess. This is the paradox. I, I like this statement. It's, the statement goes, I'm flawed, but highly favored. You can have that. Verse 9. God is faithful by whom we were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's called koinonia, meaning that the nature of the Christian is that he is, she is, they are never alone. Never, never alone. They have been subsumed into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. No matter what their circumstance is, it's always koinonia. God is faithful. And here we are. Let's get to our text. We've got to go to work. Verse 10. Now I beg you, brethren, I urge you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the executive authority. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the executive authority. Is he not the executive authority? I, I, I urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is your authority? Jesus the Christ, right? That you all speak the same thing in order that there be no divisions among you so that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Y'all got that? I beseech you, brethren, to mend your nets. To mend your nets. So a few of you guys are like, you know, Y'all love Pastor Jesse. Y'all been with me for many years. If you went through the Corinthian study, you know this is the way I framed this verse. Have I ever talked about mending nets? Right, I'm about to unpack that for you now. It'll take about 15 minutes, then we'll get into our Q&A. So Paul now is actually getting to the real business. After that opening exhortation, he's saying, now, okay, here, we got a problem. That's a good parent. Give all the accolades, talk about everything good, let them know it's all right, this is good. Ain't ain't nothing going to happen here beyond, you know, us needing to actually do some 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 critical analysis, some some positive, you know, constructive criticism. Let's work it out, family. That's what he's about to say. He says. That you all speak the same things. Did you guys get that? All right. So he already used the term. 
Remember I said the word lega? Lega means to say it. Say it as if it's done. Nothing else needs to be said. If we all come to the conclusion that we have a lega and we are able to say it and it's done, we're going to be speaking the same things, aren't we? Are we not? You're going to see it. Now, we'll, we'll get a chance to work it out a little bit more fully on Tuesday. But if we've wrestled through the important things of scriptural, scriptural doctrinal truth and we come to a proper theological conclusion, wouldn't we all agree there's one true and living God? Wouldn't we all agree that Jesus Christ is his son, the second person of the blessed Godhead? Wouldn't we all agree that the third person with the second person and the first person constitutes the triune God? Would we agree with that? Would we agree that they have obtained eternal redemption for us and that our salvation is rooted in him who loved us and gave himself for us? Wouldn't we then agree that Jesus is the whole counsel of God and that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and we are what? Complete in him. Is that a summation of our agreement? That's what I'm talking about. Did you get that? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church being smart enough to know where the legar is, where the agreement is, so that we can say the same things. This is not about nuanced, detailed, peripheral stuff. This is about the big pillars of the gospel being clear. You see what I'm getting at, gentlemen? Ladies and gentlemen, this is about the Big picture of the gospel being clear. This is about how to overcome nitpicking of ideas that are not rooted in a movement of the spirit of God, but either in the pride or insecurity of our own human makeup. I'm moving back into marriage because there it is, isn't it? Our marriages are healthy, are sick. They are strong or weak. They are duplicitous or harmonious where we have either successfully organized the priority of who we are as a couple or unraveled those priorities and have operated in a segregation of individual principles and individual importances and priorities, him over there and she over here, and the twain never meet in the middle of a symmetry that requires unity of mind. That makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely. This is where we're going uh, in, our, in our marriage series to talk about the wisdom of taking two stories and bringing them where? Together so that they overlap and serve as a complementarian enlargement of, of the overarching theme of what it means to be a man and a wife. All right, well, this is what God is calling us to be with him. Is that true? Sure, sure. So the, the term that I want to lift up for a few minutes is the problem is divisions. You see, it says no divisions. Well, the problem is they already got divisions. Divisions are there. You can write it, write it down if you want to. The problem are what we call schisms. The problem are schisms. Right. What, what you and I want to be able to do is operate out of a perfect unity. A perfect unity, which is the same as maturity. 
Because that's all, whenever you see people operating in a functional unity, that's what the word perfect means. It always means mature. It never means what we would call uh, impeccable, flawless sinlessness. Perfection in the New Testament is always simply coming to a fruition and fullness of that for which you were organically made. It's the metaphor of a plant. It's organic. When a plant is perfect, it means it comes to full what? Bloom. That's all that term means. I'm getting ready to show you some verses. And so when he says that you speak the same things and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together. Do you see that? Perfectly joined together means mended. It means to be mended. It is... And uh, it is a, um, a fishing term that I'm going to show you here in a second. That's what the term means, to mend your what? Right. In order to overcome the holes. The holes that end up in your net by your proxies. All right, so there's some presuppositions going on there. I'm not going to put anything more up there. I'm just going to show you what I mean by the scriptures. This is our term, karitzo, uh, from which we actually get a, a, a term, karitzo, um, which means to mend, to put together, to make whole, to tie up. And we'll see this now in Mark chapter uh, Matthew chapter one. We'll start there. I'll just start working through uh, Matthew chapter four. Sorry, verse 21. I'm going to walk you through a number of verses. You'll get the picture and then we can talk about what does mending have to do with me? OK, sure to you. So Jesus is going out and he's calling disciples to himself. This is the early part of his ministry. He just came out of the wilderness. Right. And going from this, he saw two other brothers. He had just talked to Peter. And John, James, the sons of Zebedee and John, his brother in a ship with Zebedee, their father. What were they doing? What were they doing? I want you to get that. Mend your nets. Mend your nets. Why? Because you are what? Fishermen. What did Jesus say he was going to make us? Fishers of men. What does that mean? That means constantly you are practicing casting your nets to draw in a draft. Casting your nets to draw in a draft. Casting your nets to draw in a draft. And over time, your net breaks. Keeping up with me? All right. So we'll get to make this more practical in a moment. But I want you to see how this goes. So. In, uh, in the previous verse, he called uh, Peter out and he went with him. And now he's taking them as they are mending their nets. Look at Luke chapter six, verse 40. Here's another way it's used. I'm going to come back to the metaphor of the nets in a second. But look at Luke chapter um, six, verse 40. I want you to capture this. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is what? Fully mature. Shall be as his what? If I were to take that in a loose sort of application back to net mending, I would say that my master is the greatest, most impeccable fisherman in the world. And I am called to be like him. Now, if I'm going to be successful in my call to be like him, 
I have to constantly mend my net so that I can minimize the liability that comes with that proxies. Did that come home? Yep. Yeah. In a minute, I'm going to ask you, what in the world does mending nets have to do with me? So if you remember back in the text where they were mending the nets, it was two brothers mending nets. All right, I want to keep going for a second. I'm almost there. We're going to almost talk about it. Galatians chapter 6, 1. Here's another use of our word, katarizo, or mending. It's used in a medical connotation. This is going to make sense to you too. Because a believer is not only a fisherman. A believer is a physician. Are we not? I told you sozo, soter in the Greek, prominently is used for healing. Are we called to be healers? Read your Bible. They shall be healers of the breach. That's Isaiah 53, Isaiah 61. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in the fault, you who are what? Mend him. Mend him. What's our word? Restore. Equivalent to what? Mend. Does it make sense? Can I keep going? Are y'all getting it? Are you, are, is it okay to see the corollary between being a fisherman and being a physician? Can you see it? Because the same, it's the same term in the proxy's idea is taking that which is breached and bringing it back together. So if you've got holes in your net, you've got to breach those holes in your net. Does that make sense? If a man's bone is broken, you mend that bone. If his spirit is broken, you mend that broken spirit. Right? Is that what Jesus came to do? Yes. Bind the brokenhearted. Did he call us to do it? He says, brethren, you that are what? Spiritual. Carnal people don't mend. Carnal people break. Carnal people don't make whole. Carnal people tear. That's all the flesh can ever do. Let me keep going. I know I got your attention now. First Thessalonians 3.10. Here's another one. Now I'm going to show you two more verses and we can talk. Um. <clears throat> There it is. Go back uh, to one, uh, go back to verse nine for me, please. I want to see if I can start. For what things can we render to God again for you, brethren, for all of the joy wherewith we joy for your sake before our God. This is Paul's love for the Thessalonian church, too. Now here's what he said in verse 10. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might what? Mend mend that which is lacking in your faith. Makes sense, doesn't it? Heal that which is lacking in your faith. Makes sense, doesn't it? I love it. Do you love it? Right. This is where I tell people, don't tell me the gospel is not practical. That's almost blasphemous. That's almost blasphemous because salvation is about the most practical thing that can go on in your life. Salvation is the most practical thing that can go in your life. The gospel is not mere theoretical abstract propositions that are disconnected from reality. Don't tell me that. All right, so here it is. This is why I'm saying, what does mending have to do with me? There are all kinds of scenarios in our life for which as gospel people, we are to engage in mending. 
And if we don't, we're sinning. That makes sense. All right. So let me keep going because I, I could go on and on and on. I could stack it. Luke chapter five. I want you to see this in Luke chapter five. This here is the Lord's teaching a lesson to the disciples about an almost good job. And then we'll go into the q and I'll pick this up next time. Now, it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, is he a fisherman now? Yes, he is. He stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, what's in the lake of Gennesaret? Now, what's on the shore listening to Jesus speak to him? Fish, fish, verse two. And he saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were going out of them and they were doing what? That's a beautiful thing. You got to wash your nets. If you do not wash your nets, your nets will dry up. The salt will make your nets brittle and they will break. A lot going on there, isn't it? It's good though, isn't it? So we're called to some kind of application of net washing if we're going to be more efficient in our usefulness of the Lord. All right, let me keep going. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's. Now, who is he getting ready to mess with? He getting ready to mess with Peter. See, when the Lord loves you, he will enter into your boat and he won't ask you any questions. Now, this is going to be a real challenge. Because he's getting <laughs> into Peter's boat and then he's going to tell Peter what to do. Now, this is really a challenge for Christians. When you think you have a handle over your own domain and the Lord Jesus is getting ready to tell you what you should be doing. This is going to be a challenge, isn't it? Here it is, though. He entered in Simon's boat and told him that he should thrust out a little from the land. And when he did, he sat down and he taught the people out of the ship. Isn't this beautiful? He had to because there were tens of thousands of people at the shore. It was too many. He needed the echo chamber of the wind on the sea to take his voice and carry it out. But he also needed to get away from the throng. Very important. Verse four. Here it is. We're going to keep moving. Now, when he had stopped speaking, that's our word, lego in application. He's done talking. If he were continually talking, it would be in the present indicative or present participle form, uh, form as he was speaking. He's done speaking. Now, if the Lord Jesus is done speaking, does he need to say anything else? That's called lego. The word is done. That's important for us to get. Does Peter need to come on at the end and add a little addendum? But what the Lord Jesus is about to do is what he always does when he's teaching to his disciples, he will take the word spoken and cast a parable alongside of it to illustrate the efficacy of the word spoken. That's what the word parabole means, to throw alongside as an illustration of what was said. You getting ready to use Peter for the illustration. Here we go. He says, launch out into, uh, now when he had left speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a what? Now, Peter has but one thing to do and just obey. Peter, will you just do what the man says do? Verse five. And Simon, what? That's the problem. He didn't hear the let go. He thinks, okay, now, Jesus, you out of your territory here. This is a problem. 
You did good. We got the we got the theoretical propositional truth. They got the message. Now, don't mess this up. Please don't mess this up. So now Peter is leaning on his own what? This is what I talked to us about before. My time is way overdue. This is what I talked to us about before. Knowing how to understand your person in the midst of your domain, your domain and person relationship, your your need to be able to conform to your environment so that you can get out of your environment, everything that you need to get out of it. That means that you and I have to have a proper understanding of who we are in the moment. In another moment, you will be something else. In another moment, still, you will be something else altogether. This is where we're talking about identity has multiple uh, representative characteristics to it. Like you are a bunch of things all at once. But it all depends upon your context, where you are, at what time. In a given situation, you might be the teacher. In another one, you might very well be the student. And if you're the student, you can't be the teacher at that time. And then we can carry that over to so many things in our lives. You and I are transformers. We get in our car. We're driving from point A to point B. We are subordinating ourselves to the automation of our vehicle, but we're also conforming to the laws of the highway so that we can get to where we need to be lawfully and legitimately. Am I making some sense? If I were to turn that upside down and get stupid, I would get in front of the car, tie a rope to the car and drag the car behind me to go where I'm going. Now I'm out of my lane. This is a violation of the subject object distinction in the context of the situation. And we can do that in relationships, too. All right, here we go. And Simon Anson said unto master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Like, he could have just left that alone. (laughs) Nevertheless, at your word, see, now right here, I'm just telling you, is a tail whipping. This is a tail whipping. Should be. Because the first portion of his proposition was a throwaway statement. It bore no benefit to Christ. Christ did not need to hear that little addendum. That was an insecurity on Peter's part because Peter was not trusting the master. He stated it out of his own mouth, master, rabbi. Okay, if I'm the rabbi, why don't you just do what I say? We, 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 that's me, that's you. We've toiled all night. The master knew that. And we didn't take a thing. The master knew that too. He knew you were disgruntled. He knew you were mad. He knew you were tired. He knew you were in a certain kind of way, but he also knew that you were in a position now to be humbled. Because what Jesus had already said was, you're getting ready to have a drought. You're getting ready to be blessed. Did you get that? You're getting ready to be blessed. Stay with me. So this is the beauty of sowing to spiritual things and reaping carnal things. So Peter came to worship that day, didn't he? And God blessed him in the worship. Now he's going to bless him in the in the in the physical because he came to worship. I love it. I love it. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. I don't know if I want that book, Peter. Uh, verse six. And when they had when and when they had this done, they enclosed 
a great multitude of fishes. Do you see it? It was massive. Now, Peter is getting ready to learn a lesson. And their net broke. Do you see it? The Lord Jesus knew his net was going to break. Because Peter is in training to be fishers of men. But what Peter has to learn is to implicitly and explicitly trust Christ in the process. Right now, Peter has an admixture of his own skill sets in relationship to Christ's decree. And these two are what Jesus would say a little while later. You can't take old wineskins and use them for new wine because the old wineskins are rigid. They don't have the capacity for expansion and flexibility for the new wine, right? The oxygenation in the wine, uh, the fermentation in the wine. And so it is here. Peter is, uh, Peter is out of pocket because his nets are, doesn't have the capacity to hold the drought that Jesus brought on him. He's about to learn a lesson. Look at verse seven. I love this. And they beckoned unto their partners. Now what is Peter doing? Calling for help. That's a lesson. When God is blessing you and your blessings overtake you and you don't have the capacity to manage them, don't be too proud. Get some help. But you have to know how to recognize when you are being blessed. And then you got to check yourself. Because you will often in the moment of being blessed want to do what the Israelites did and that is herded to yourself. Sometimes your blessing will actually be a test for you to show you that the one who is blessing you, this is the plusante, this is the outpouring, is outpouring on you to show you your weakness. Sometimes blessings will show us our weakness. Did that make some sense to anybody? Sometimes blessings will show. Please understand that there shouldn't be a person in the room that doesn't get this. Blessings will often show you your arrogance. They will often show you your carnality. They will show you your pride. They will show you your presumption. They will show you your inclination to be more sinful. They will show you your greed. They will show you your selfishness. You know how when we broke Anybody in the house know what it means to be broke? Broke. Okay. Now I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready to move into the next one. Do you know how when we broke, we often promise God, if once I get some money, Lord, I'm going to give you some. I'm going to give everybody that needs some money some. You know how you tell that lie? Straight lie. Straight lie. Straight lie. God could give you a million dollars and you would send more with that million dollars than you would being broke. Because it's a matter of character. Straight lie. Am I making some sense? And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ships, that they should come and help. And they came and filled both (laughs) ships so that both of them began to sink. Now the Lord is just straight up getting glory to himself. Is he not just straight up getting glory to himself? He made the Galilean Sea. 
<laughs> he got fish all over that water. And this is really funny because Peter and the boys were out all night long traversing up and down the sea, trying to find some fish. And I could hear them say, man, ain't no fish in this water, man. Oh, ain't no fish in this water. Let's, we got to stop fishing here. Let's go down the other place tomorrow. There's all kind of fish in the water. <laughs> You have to ask the Lord to bring you the fish. <laughs> oh, I can teach you out some lessons. I can teach you some lessons about what it means to be fishers of men. All right, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to let us go into some Q&A. I can teach you some lessons, though. So I'm some of you guys pastor. Is that true? Right. Some of y'all been with me for a long time, haven't you? Yes. Right. And, and we at Grace have been blessed for many, many years, have we not? Yes. Many, many, many years. And all these things that the disciples are learning, I had to learn. My elders had to learn. Yeah. My deacons are learning. <clears throat> They are learning that by, no, by man's strength, no man will prevail. It's not about how much you know. It is so very important to know what it means to be in vital fellowship with God for God to bless you. It's so important. You can't overlook the lessons that the gospel lays out for you. Because those, those lessons are for not only the pastor or the teaching elders, but for everybody that serves God. These same lessons apply across the board. He uses these principles. To whom much is given. That's exactly right. If you are faithful and little, those are axiomatic. Those, God does not, he doesn't set that aside. He doesn't give you special blessing. Like he doesn't say, uh, you know, I'm going to take you and there are characteristics and qualities in your life that you know you and I have been talking about for a long time. We need to work on. But you're wanting me to bless you with this, that, and the other thing. Now, you're asking me to give you fish. But you're really asking for a serpent. Are you listening to me? Listen, I'm telling you how this works. It's not, it's not, this is not rocket science. This is simply about learning how to follow the Lord. This is what this is about. This is what I I always warn us about, just sort of theoretical propositional talk. That's following the Lord is the only way you can see the blessing. Now, what he'll do in your life is bless you just enough for you to know that he can bless you. Does that make some sense? Of course. Of course it does. He'll do that like we're doing with the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? They're asking, they're going to get it. And they're asking all the wrong way. It's all jacked up the way they're asking. But God's job is not to simply be some kind of bellhop that every request you ask or render to him, that he responds to you. That's not a God, that's a slave. It's a cosmic slave. So what God is going to always do with you and me is remind you and I 
that it's about a relationship with him by which he's shaping your character so that you can bear a load. And the load is not for you. The load is for others. Did that make some sense? So sometimes he'll give you a little draft in order for you to realize you need help. See, Peter needed some help. And he called out, hey, brothers, help. That's called koinonia. That's called fellowship in the process of the task. Mm. See, Peter didn't go out and rent three other boats and try to do it himself. Because the moment was too exegetical. It was too urgent for him to do that. Now he has to humble himself because you know what's going on in our text in 1 Corinthians? There's a division rather than a unity of the multiplicity of the brethren, which are all called to be fishermen. So what if God gives us a drought? I'm going back to the beginning of our study. What if he opens up a new wave of of sinners to come in? Are we in a position mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and practically ready to deal with them in the various modes of struggles and troubles that they're in? Will our nets hold? Is that a good question? All right, let's let's do it. I'll I'll pick up on this on Tuesday. I'll pick up on it. I promise you I will. All right, who who, who, who wants to be the first one? Otherwise, I'll shut it down. I'll shut it down. All right, and I need valid, valid, I need need you to engage me. I don't want you off in the abstract because this is so important. All right, my sister Jackie. I have a question. You got to put the mic to your mouth, sis. Okay. Can, you have okay. such a beautiful, gentle voice. I'm you sorry. Sound okay. like you're too um, I had a question about Legos. Legos, uh-huh. the word, and how we apply the application. We say it, we speak it according to the word of God. But also, I kind of, you know how you hear they say name it and claim it? So that it has nothing to do with naming and claiming something. Nope. This is just totally in agreement with the word of God, right? The That's idea, the application. The idea, the idea here is that when you get a lega, that means we're done talking because we've drawn a conclusion as to what should be. When we're doing lagos in the mutual reciprocative sense, you speak, I speak, this is where we have the term, are you ready? Dialogos. It's called a dialogue. This is what we will be talking about in our marriage series. Folks who are in community should be engaged in dialogos. When we have come to a conclusion, we have a lega. Okay? We have a word. And we can now move on in that word. That's the way a husband and wife is supposed to be. That's the way the believer where Christ (laughs) is supposed to be. Am I making some sense? Did that help you, sis? All right, come on. Let's keep moving. Who has the mic? I do sister here. Okay, go ahead on. Go ahead okay, on. so you have up there perfect unity. Yes. Okay, so, and then you started with, you know, how he made, you know, Corinth so beautiful. So he, I'm wondering, this is my question. So he's perhaps mirroring heaven, and then perhaps we're to mirror Jesus. Um, and then you're talking about Maybe all this dysfunction so that there's a new way to, like, build his kingdom. So, 
in Genesis, he creates it. It's good. He puts Adam and then Eve, and we're to mirror. We walk with God. He creates somebody to mirror him. That's us. So now it's just doing that, right? Is that My question is, is that's what you were just saying and all that. And then you also talked about the eagle, which I found very interesting because the eagle loses all of its feathers when it molts and it gets its very weakest. And if it survives it, it's stronger after. That's right. And so, and you were talking about that. So I just really felt like a lot of symbolism in your um, delivery for us to just really kind of try and mirror Jesus and perfect unity so that we can build on earth as it is in heaven. We can mirror heaven here. You got it. And build the kingdom. No, you got it. And of course, you and I talked about this. We built this gestalt. We built this larger paradigm. And this is storytelling. So if you guys are drawn in, I don't have to fill in what she says. She has a, a, there was a bunch of gaps in there for the people listening. Mm -hmm. But that's how that goes when you don't have a common story with each other. Are you guys buying into what I mean by how to tell stories, how to engage in narratives? Whenever you're having conversations, it is some mode of communication that you're rendering to people. And the most efficient modality of communicating long term with someone is when you have a narrative. When that person gets to know you, they know you through your narrative. Your narrative will be a set of sort of uh, principles by which you operate and you frame those principles in normal everyday nomenclature and talk. But you will have a particular kind of narrative that when I listen to you, I I know who that is. Because I know her. I know where she is. I know what she's thinking in terms of the larger sort of macro issues in her life. And so when I hear her speaking, her story immediately appears in a composite with which I am familiar enough to now enter into her story. When you meet a new person, you got to really listen for a long time to kind of capture their story. Am I making some sense? This is so important. Storytelling is so important with minimizing people's misunderstanding you. Like if you're not, if you haven't worked on developing the terms and phrases that allows you to share with people the essential you uh, in a sort of concise way, then y'all just got to talk for a long time before they put together a narrative about you. But if you help them put that narrative together, and this is the secret to relationship. You help them put that narrative together, then they'll get you sooner than later. So anytime you're dealing with somebody that you're trying to build a relationship, I don't care what it is, business or anything, and that requires you uh, being vulnerable to them and them getting some insight into who you are, be diligent to frame what you want to say in a fashion that you're okay with them taking away from you. See, help them know you. Don't just tell them, you know, you got to figure me out, man. I'm just who I'm just who I is. This, I'm just who I is. And it's not going to work in relationships. Once I'm going to be talking about masculine, feminine. OK, we go have to go there because that's the culture we live in. 
I'm just going to tell you, <laughs> okay, in the masculine feminine, your narrative got to be right for a brother to get you, okay, because there's a tons of moving parts with the female. There's parts all over the place. So you got to frame, <laughs> you got to frame that thing right for us to kind of get an idea of what's going on. Just, just let, I'm just letting you know, especially if it's a price for us to pay if we don't get it right. All right, we'll, we'll have fun with that down the line. But we got to help each other by becoming by becoming um, our own PR person relative to how we want people to get us. People don't have to get you. You help them get you. So I already know what Cindy is talking about because we're collaborating on a missional paradigm that has to do with, with God's glory being restored in our world at the aqua level. Um, so we're looking at some big picture stuff. So I get it. Yes, that's what we're talking about. Right. Corinth was devastated by the Roman army um, somewhere around 191 B.C. And the Roman army rebuilt it. But it, it wasn't pristine. In other words, not the Roman army, but the Roman Empire. It wasn't pristine. It was it was glorious in a lot of ways. But God had another vision for it. Like God has another vision for all of us. So what if you and I are the ruins of some maniacal, tyrannical system, spiritual or otherwise, that has totally devastated us and we're putting ourselves back together? And it may be functional, but it may not be glorious. And then God intervenes and he has a better vision for who we are than we do. Don't we have to buy into his story? Yes, you do. Because his job is to persuade you that he has a better vision for you than you do. This is what the whole Exodus narrative is about. And this is how we should be with God and him with us. Y'all get what I'm saying. Who has the mic? Who has the mic? Somebody ought to have mics by now. Okay, Christina. Okay, quick question. Sort of think you've already answered this, but um, you know where you says where where you know it says we should be we're we're already going to be equipped for utterances and actions for for serving the Lord and also for bringing out the gospel. I have heard younger Christians often say take that out of context where they went out and they didn't you know take any provisions with them because they'll have places to stay where in that one context where they were commanded to go out and speak the word. And obviously the utterances that, that we'll have that we don't have to worry about what we're going to say, that comes with mature uh, learning in scripture, correct? It sounds like you're saying two things, so help me. Reorganize. It sounds like somebody going out the house without clothes and without money, without credit cards right. or anything. I have, walk the streets. And, right. then the, and then the other thing is, I don't even know what the second. Can you reorganize? I that? have had Christians take, um, they were usually young people, but they would take that story in That's the New the Testament. Text. That's the Luke text where there's evangelism to go on. And he says, don't take a script. Don't take this. Don't take that. Right. I'll and take care the Lord will tell you what to say. Right. And I've heard new Christians say, well, now I'll know what to say even before they're studying the scripture. So I just kind of wanted to clarify you know, what did I write down? Uh, that, you know, we'll be equipped in our utterances and, and acts, uh, actions, but we're to say only what God says. So 
just to kind of clarify, um, it's, right, it's once you. we learn scripture. It's okay, not. Let me, let me help you. Right. You already have it, but visualize it like this. Visualize it like this. The Christian should respond to his or her relationship with God so that to the degree that you get God's message, that's what you say. Did that make some sense? Did that make sense? So I really want to keep it simple because the Corinthians did a crazy thing and we're going to get into it. Not only did they buy into, I am of, of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of this person, that person. They also bought into the mystical pagan religions that, that engaged in esoteric speech, which is babble, okay? Which means that they were waiting merely for a spirit to overtake them and grant them what is called glossolalia, the utterance of things that make no sense. In other words, they were moving in the opposite direction of the nature of the kingdom of God. The nature of the kingdom of God is spiritual intelligence granted to you by a real dialogue with the true and the living God through the mediation of people that walk closer to him than you do. We're seeing that hierarchy in the Old Testament. It's hierarchical. I use the term mediation. Haven't I used the term mediation? God spoke to Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron. Aaron and Moses spoke to the elders. The elders spoke to the people. Then they obeyed and left. God spoke to Moses. God spoke to Moses to tell Aaron, you two go to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh. It's a hierarchy working all the time. And it's always the inner gaon of God speaking to us. That is a real conversation that's not wrapped up in esoteric speech. It's here's what God says. So now in the first century, the distinct difference between then and now is that we have a codified word. We have a codified word by which we know now after many millenniums that we don't need God saying something else other than what this word has said. Now, does it mean that God, by his spirit, is not communicating to us unctionally in what we call intuitively? But that unctional, intuitive speaking to us is a post-de facto discernment of what Scripture says. Yeah. I'll drill down into that a little bit. I'll drill down into that a little bit. Because... Every day you and I are not looking for a Bible verse every 30 seconds to make a move doing this, that, or the other thing. That's not what's going on. So what we're not doing is over-literalizing the, our dependence upon Scripture to speak literally to every detail in our life. That would be wrong. We would be quickly guilty of the superfluity of biblical information being so overwhelming in our mind that we would abuse scripture. I'll talk about that later. Later, This is the idea in cognitive science where you can be overwhelmed by so much information that it floods you and you actually lose your clarity. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. It's so true. You and I got little thimble brains. We have to have God meter out revelation to us in a sequential, coherent, timely fashion for us to be able to digest it and then for it to metabolize in a way of producing understanding. 
and therefore we be able to agree with God. Way too much bantering about terminology and speech and even quoting scripture where it is not completely digested and properly understood and therefore disseminated in a way that doesn't profit people. This is the person that you will see running around just parroting scripture. Am I making some sense? That's not what God is saying. That's why I use the term leg off. This is why, and Paul is going to explain this when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. He's going to say, I'd rather speak five words than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. He's juxtaposing the superfluity of all kind of data and information that doesn't do any good when the subject matter at hand only requires a terse propositional truth that's in accordance with that need. This is called the spirit of wisdom. Okay? It's so important to know. So if you are doing the first work of devotion and fellowship with God, where the word of God is entering into you, then that word is going to shape your understanding. It's going to shape your capacity to be sensitive to the movements of God, to the providence of God, to the ways of God. And when you have a walk with God at length, they are patternistic. They are, in the positive sense, pathological. In other words, you know the Lord. Am I making some sense? You know the Lord. The Lord doesn't act helter-skelter. It would, be, it would be chaos. So God has confined his wisdom in the codification of Scripture in order to anchor us in our walk with him so our sensibilities lead to an outcome that we can affirm through the Scriptures. So we're not perfect. And as Paul said, we see through a glass what? Right. And that's, that's where it would tell you not to slow down. Slow down because you may not see as clearly as you think, right? But once you get it, you say it. That's Lego. Who else has the mic? All right, Marlis. Hold on. Yeah, Marlis, I'll let, I'll let after this lady you can go. I go now? Yep. Okay. Um, I would like to know if you talked about mending nets. How does a person, I think you're talking about, because you mentioned about um, not only being evangelists, but physicians, healers. I feel that there are a lot of things in my upbringing and past that affected my perception of God. And I'm starting to realize that um, it's, it's a problem more than I realized. And I, I, I'm laughing not really because it's funny, because it's not funny, because... It could be funny if you are overcoming it. Well, Meaning that there's a triumph for us when we see God working to help us overcome our past impediments. Well, what I want to know is on top, well, in addition to that, I, I, I also feel that, not, well, let me just say this. I feel that 
the churches I went to in the past and then family um, experiences, relationship experiences with key people in my life are, and then things I heard, legalism, they, they're, they're create, they've created a kind of a sense of jumbledness and lostness. Um, yeah. And Definitely. even parrot, you know, I, 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 I've heard people parrot things to me, and I'm starting to see that these things have a much stronger effect than I would have suspected. So I want to know, how does a person begin to, to, to where, where do you start? Um, I, I... I want to know how to see God really as my father rather as a father who is not kind of like Mr. Spock. And there is a reason why I have the Spock orientation. Um, I don't even know. I don't even know if we're supposed to see God as a father in an emotional way. Um in a positive emotional way. I'm not even really sure how much emotionality, joyful emotionality we should have with the, with the Lord. Also, I, I want to know, when you talk about mending, I, I, I sense that you were going to later on go down, maybe not tonight, but that you were going to talk about mending conflict well, that's, that's the point. Okay, so I want to know, um, I guess I'll wait for you to, to discuss that, but what comes to my mind is that all we can do is the best that we know at the time of our theological development. And, of course, one thing I have learned is if you're going to engage with somebody on a very significant confrontational level that you should probably get input of a wise person so that you know so that you're not going off the deep end very good so are these kind of i want to take it up because you i think i already got you early i wanted to hear you out a little bit more i'll take one more i'll take one more question if, if somebody uh, wants to Lamont? Did we have enough? Oh, I'll get you. I'll get you, Sager. Hold on. Let me just make an observation about what uh, Marlis is saying. All of that that Marlis is talking about is brought to the table of our personality, uh, individually and collectively, in terms of her her um, her background experience with the world of religion, the world of theology its personal impact on her life as a child and her relationship with her parents. Um, And then as she gets older, because of the legalistic tendencies of religion, it actually um, distanced her from any uh, real comprehensive confidence in a biblically accurate view of God as father. That ought to make sense to a whole lot of us who have had deficient relationships with our dad. Okay? So that what she said should not be a problem for you unless you haven't done the hard work of self-reflection, which is what I'm going to be getting into in the marriage series. Because where we don't do the hard work of self-reflection, 
we don't know ourselves well enough to be able to commend ourselves to someone else, especially in the potential of a growing relationship. So I keep, I keep carrying it over there because we're all products of a familial paradigm. All of us are products of the biblical mandate of parenting and children, right? Which we need to save. The institution of marriage is about to be utterly obliterated. You can't look at the burgeoning queer transgender uh, society and not know that it is calling for an end to a biblical marriage paradigm. You can't look at that and not see the harbinger there. Do you understand that? You can't. You, you're blind if you think that what they want is to sustain a biblical view that a man is a biological uh, uh, person with distinct qualities different than a biological female. They want to obliterate that. Right now, if they get a seat at the table in the pseudoscience world of postmodern irrationality, then the table becomes a table of fools including us sitting there, if somehow we start to tolerate that as reality, because the moment we tolerate it as reality, we completely undercut our argument for our own ontological integrity. Did you understand what I just stated? Right, so as jacked up as our Humanity is at the level in which Marlis is speaking about how difficult it's been for her to even figure out how to think right in her relationship with God in order to talk right with others, which we know is true to some degree. We're all wounded that way. Um, what we have to do is recover that. We have to recover it for the downline. We have to mend the net of functional relationships at the koinonia level. The first time you saw the mending of the net were two men in fellowship, clear on who they were as men and clear on their roles as men. And they were engaging in the reinforcement of their male role model for their society. Did that make some sense? It would carry over to women. See, because we have our identity that we have to work through, then we have our roles. You destroy the identity, you destroy the roles. You destroy the roles, you destroy the relevance of the identity. That makes sense. And as much as the roles have been attacked for hundreds of years, especially the last hundred years, because the roles have been attacked as to what constitutes a biblical husband, biblical wife, biblical father, biblical mother, biblical uh, husband, biblical wife, as much as that has been attacked, it impacts the prodigy. The prodigy grows up fractured. So the one thing we can't do is allow the church now to be dictated by the Corinthian culture. That's why our study is here. That's why Paul said, Paul said, uh, come out of her, my children, and touch not the unclean thing. And I'll be your God. 
You'll be my people. I'll be your father. You'll be my children. Remember, God said that to the Corinthians. So while they were in the world, they must not be of it because the world is going to deconstruct your identity. Which is the reason why our churches don't have nothing to say about what we're dealing with. And for us to even have this post Bible study conversation the way we're having it, I thank God for it. Because if you're not being directed, you, I'm talking you guys, if you're not being directed to think through what the warfare is out there, then you're not ready for the battle of even mending the nets to cast the nets. If you're not ready for that battle, this is what the church should have learned over this COVID thing. It was asleep on its reservation. Not aware that the enemy was making head roads right on into our society. Because every church is simply the byproduct of the society. Now God is calling us to mend our nets. So that as we share the gospel with people out there, that the nets would hold them into the community. And that they won't have gaping holes so that they come in and they go out. They come in and they go out. They come in and they go out. Did you hear what I just said? They come in and they go out. They come in and they go out because we don't engage in the net mending. So the church at Corinth is being told, stop the divisions because that's Satan's territory. That's what he did in the beginning, didn't he? Right, so what we... What we It's going to happen, but what we want to do is try to minimize the frequency of it. And the way we start is by being profoundly committed to sensibility towards one another. Sensibilities towards one another. And understanding the enormous tasks that we all have individually for self-development and to encourage each other in that self-developmental process with God and not impede it. Not impede it. All right, Bo, uh, I think you have the mic. You can finish up. Oh, okay, you got to go after that, brother. Go ahead on, Mr. Uh, Mr. Eric. Eric. Hey, uh, so I'm still unemployed, but I do have a press report, but uh, I'm still looking for a job. I did have an interview at Kasha Plumbing today. Okay. And uh, they called me, and then when I did the interview thing, they lost it. You know, in the personality, they lost it. So it's kind of funny like that. And so I did interview with six, rent a car. It's a German one. That looks pretty good, but I don't think they're going to go with me because I'm not vaccinated. And also, do we know anybody that works at Yellow Freight in Hayward? Angela asked me to ask because I did a, there's a one job for those guys that I, that I went for. Ooh. Yellow Freight? Yellow Freight, yeah, Yellow Freight and Hayward. Somebody's, uh, they need workers? No, I did a job there, but I'm trying to find a contact because they never call me, and this is a shop. It's, a, it's typing and working in the shop, so it's perfect for me. And the, main, the other one is the Kasha Plumbing. It's delivering the stuff to the guys out in the field, so it's perfect for me, and I get off. I get to hang out with my son, you know, 7.30, 3.30. Eric, yes. your last name Sager? Sager, yeah. yeah. And as far as mending the net now, I have, since I have invited Tonya to, I got it, we got it, take the mic from her. 
I got you. I got you. Do the thing and she's coming. Good. 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 Excellent. Good. We're going to pray that that happens. And and we're going to pray that God gives you grace, Eric, to let God be God. Okay? Either way it goes, I'm glad she said yes. Don't do any manipulation. Very good. Marriage is a profoundly challenging institution with a ton of building blocks that can work to shape our character if we, if we interpret it correctly. The enemy there wants you to believe that it is over with and done too. You can hear the voices. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. People are yearning for relationship. For real. In many cases, they are absolutely scared to death. And rightly so. Rightly so. So be sensitive to it. What's your thoughts, Bo? Yeah. Um, I, I was reflecting back on First Thessalonians, as you referred us to, in um, I think it's chapter 3, verse 10. Yeah. Um, I get from that, um, even, you know, from 7 through 10, I won't read it all, but Basically, um, the report of the brethren afar off of their faith um, uh, comforts, you know, um, Paul and those that ran with him in all their stress and affliction. And in that sense, that's a shore up. And then uh, right at the verse that you spoke of, I'll, I'll read 9 and 10 if you will allow me. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect or mend that which is lacking in your faith. Um, and I would carry that to like the last verse of the last chapter of uh, James, you know. Agreed. Totally. Right. So I, I got that from Thessalonians, from, yeah. your, from your scripture. Totally. So if I may, just yeah. a little bit longer. Um, and I'll just say this in general. Basically, as the Lord sent Elihu to shut down um, yes. the book of Job. Yes. His three friends in verse 32, chapter 32. But then he honed in on Job by God moving him. And he was mending his net for his lack of faith for reproving God. And yet at the same time, um, you know, it, after all, the Lord uh, checked his three friends and Job ended up praying for his friends for their salvation. There's more mending and net, mending nets. Here's the thing that's just beautiful. I like uh, the story of Naaman. 
uh, second. Uh, All right, Bo, 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 Bo. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I like that. The get that, get that brother a round of applause, Bo. No, you know you made your point. I got one lady, one sister I want to close out with. So that's an example of being able to take what we call a micro principle, a macro principle, and lay it over against other portions of scripture. And what that does is it affirms that macro principle. You see it show up in many different places. And that's the love of the brethren. The love of the brethren is going to engage in net mending. Uh, that's a beautiful thing. Thank you, Lamont. Uh, my sister. Okay. Um, What's your name, young lady? Caroline. Caroline. <laughs> Sweet Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and stop me if I go too far. So the disciple is not above his master. and But once we become perfect, we become like the master. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, so in another version... So let me say something about that, mm -hmm. just for the record. Because as I stated before, this... So when we're dealing with the relationship between us and God at the knowledge level, it is analogous. It is not equational. Like, we, we don't have the same knowledge that God has. We have the like knowledge that God has. The analogy is that of a father with his son. It's important for you to know that. That a son is ontologically everything that his father is, but he is not his father. Okay, just to uh, stop so there. I'm, so. I'm, ta I'm talking for everybody because we can struggle with that. And I've heard the, I've heard the perfectionist group make the error of saying that we can be for perfect in the same sense in which God is perfect. It's by analogy that we are perfect. That is, we reach our full potential for who we are, and then we become a reflection of who he is. That It is not equal. It is what we call analogous. Does that help you guys? It's very important. So go ahead on, sis. So that, that, that was the question. So is it an equation thing that now I'm equal to my master? And I think now you've answered that. That's right. So we, in another version, then the student is not equal to the teacher. But if the student is fully trained, the student becomes as the teacher. So yes. it's not now, okay, now I'm like my teacher. So is it, because now the student can become, now the next generation of teachers. So yeah, and that's, that's what is meant. Like, no, that's is what it, is meant. That's this what is, yeah, this is called exousia in the Greek. This is called derived authority. Derived authority is always the authority that's given to you in the training paradigm or training mechanism of the teacher-student, teacher-student, teacher-student. Student becomes now like the teacher in that the student is a teacher to teach other students. And it's a teacher-student thing that's going on. You pass the baton on. It's the same thing with parents with children. Parents with children, children grow up and children be adults. They're like their parents. They're not the same. But now they have the capacity and maturity to have children and raise the children as the parent did. This is the proliferation principle of scripture. And that is the promise of God. So you can never rise higher than your teacher or your master or your parent, or whoever that relationship is. But you can become analogous to if you have derived from all, from them everything that allows you to grow into your fullness. And 
just as a closing principle. This is not true with God. But it can be true with us. It can be true that you can become greater than your earthly teachers. It is true. So when, just, just stop there because I really need to understand. So at some point, you can be greater than even your master. That's right. Okay. Right. Okay. Your earthly masters. Your elder master. At right. some point, you can be greater than. Right. Than. And, the, and, the, and the logic would follow this way. That if we don't have a closed loop system of um, quality assurance that allows for the relationship between the teacher and student to maintain the highest quality across the trajectory of time, diminishing returns can have it that in the process of the sequel of teacher, student, teacher, student, you can get an inferior teacher and a student that has the capacity to surpass his teacher and move into a position of being more influential, more broadly learned, more broadly uh, understood and impactful than the teacher before him. That has to be understood. This is where the psalmist says, you have made me wiser than my teachers. Right. If David is speaking in the context of having the um, elders and the scholars sitting with him at his table because he's the king and that's what you do. But those scholars are the uh, drunkards of Ephraim and those elders are blinded like greedy dogs. Then they have lost their capacity to reach an echelon of knowledge that would challenge David to rise to that level. But David was able to exceed that level in many ways because of his passionate love for God. So when we use that principle, it is not what we would call impeccably axiomatic. It's a general principle that you, you can at least rise to the level of your teachers, but on occasions, um, there are going to be really good people who can exceed their teacher and become an uber teacher themselves and take the next group to a higher level of, of maturity. Um, the Apostle Paul would, would definitely um, fit that, that bill in a sense in his, um, his being with the disciples as apostles and yet not having all of the earthly benefit of doing three and a half years with Jesus like they did. But the apostles knew the excellence of Paul in his own personal deep connection to Jesus at the level that God used Paul to do more work than they did in the expansion of the gospel. And they were totally down with that because what we understand is our God has a right to take any one of us and blow us up at any time that he wants to and use us any way that he chooses to use us. And we got to be fine with that. That was the way it was with John the Baptist. You know, he reached the pinnacle. And when Jesus came, he said, I must decrease because he's about to increase. And that's just called humility. God can do that with any of us. And, and, and quite naturally, if you are a loving parent, we want our children to always exceed us. In, in all capacities, right? I, I definitely do because of what I meant before, the, the uh, vulnerability of a deficiency in my own fullness. If I don't reach that fullness, I don't want my kids to be limited because I didn't reach that fullness. Yes. So now finally, because I'm a woman, so now... Can you define a woman? I am kidding. <laughs> I'm supposed to be submissive to my husband. So that's I love that. Thing. Go ahead on, girl. 
So even though I'm submissive to my husband, still the gifts of God upon me can, can, I can be visualized as being above my husband because maybe the gifts that I have, my husband doesn't have those gifts, right? So I can still be maybe a tutor to my husband, but still submissive. Right. So right. Submiss- sub- all I'm trying to say is the submissiveness in a woman's character is not oppression. I can still be submissive to my husband, but still have gifts that are above that, that seem to be above my husband. Right. Right. Biblically, without a doubt, we're going to get into that again, too. That is part of what is called the conflict narrative that has been imposed upon our society to cre- create what is called the great divide. The conflict narrative and we've had to grow up with that in our families too where the husband and the wife did not walk in a level of unity that actually created a robust complementarian relationship it was a hostile competitive relationship yes. and this is what justified your feminism in our culture today and it has destroyed masculinity in men this is what you're looking at you're looking at men having been destroyed by a prolonged oppressive, tyrannical, relentless propaganda on the part of the feminist movement. And, and what that does is it lowers the quality of men in terms of prospects for marriage because psychologically and sociologically, they're not equipped to actually meet the woman at the level that they must meet them at so that they can enhance each other up. This is called a mutual matriculation up into the Um, status of mature men and women so that they can be all they can for their children and for the environment that they're in. We're struggling with that right now because we have lived with the competitive paradigm way too long. So I've been teaching forever that the submission is voluntary. It's not coerced. Should not be coerced. It's it's not coerced. If it's coerced, it's tyrannical. It's it's despotic. And if it's despotic and tyrannical, then the woman has unjustifiably allowed it. Right. So God does not permit any of us to be in a position of authority and exercise tyrannical control or rigor over another person. It doesn't matter what that institution is. This is what I taught us during COVID. You don't have a government just telling you what to do. They have to persuade us by policy and example that what they are recommending to us is legitimately good for us, right? So to be like God is to always be engaged in the good, right? So even with a husband, if a husband exercises a kind of uh, mutually agreed upon veto power. I talk about that, okay? But I, wives have veto power too. That's a long story, but it's true. Um, if he exercises a veto power, he has to prove that that veto is for the good. He can't just say it is. He has to prove it. So this is a constant reciprocal symbiotic um, openness between the two in order to demonstrate before each other that we are authentically committed to self-maturity because in self-maturity, then I'm going to minimize selfishness in my interactions with you because maturity is going to uh, be able to quell the insecurity that rises up and takes on the kind of uh, pseudo authority of simply telling you what to do because I'm your boss telling you what to do because I'm your master. 
That is a pseudo authority that God never renders to a man. He has to prove his ability to be competent across any conversation, any subject matter that he's dealing with with his wife. If he has a wife that's sharp and intelligent and coherent and capable of reasoning and rationally and coupled with the humility and the um, winsomeness and the uh, honorable uh, capacity to um, bring along with her petition. And that's what a godly woman has to have, the ability to couple her capacity to reason, discuss, dialogue, even debate with honor and respect and with uh, attractiveness to her husband so that he knows that no, she is romantic. not doing it. Uh, and, and all that, child, all that, all that. If he's a good man, Abigail was that woman for David. Woo! Bo. Bo, no, do not vote. Drop the mic. She did drop that mic. And she got elevated too. Which means then we have to be trained like the upcoming uh, marriage. We, we then need to be trained to get there, right? right. So it's, it's self, which I call self-determination, then to get to those trainings so that you can get to that perfect unity. You want, the, the number one goal for all of us will end here um, for us to be free and um, to be free and to be authentically, effectively, useful for God is to be committed to self-growth. Now, self-growth is not exclusively you doing it. It's still a combined effort with the community, but it's prioritizing me becoming everything that I can be so I can be everything that God wants me to be, not only with my spouse, but with everybody else too. Because your husband is glorified when you are a blessing to other people. As Christ is glorified when we are a blessing for him to other people. That's kind of what we're dealing with. What Paul is saying, hey, you guys, don't minimize your blessing. Make this thing expand out. Mend your nets. All right, let me close this in prayer. Then I need some guys to help me with my boards. Thank you guys for all the contributions. This is the stuff that I like. Um, Our stuff gets recorded. And on average, about 500 people a week uh, listen, just who are avid listeners. And then it goes out in different ways that I can't keep up with those uh, numbers. But, you know, it's a, it's a lot of people that listen for this kind of stuff. You don't get these kind of Q&As in churches either. Pastors don't want to be vulnerable to questions or discussion and certainly not debate. So, you know, grace is unique in that way. But we, we got more work to do on, on being, you know, being gracious about it. But we got to keep growing There's a lot of bad stuff going on in our world and we got to be able to handle it. We got to be able to handle it. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness to everyone that came out. Thank you for those that are watching. As we go our way now, give us traveling mercies. Prepare us to worship you and the body of Christ everywhere that calls upon your name out of a pure heart. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.